You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Well, I need a couple of volunteers as we... uh, as we get going here, so maybe uh, Desmond, is that Desmond Watts right there? I can hardly see right here. So Desmond, come on up here, and maybe Heather, can you come up here for a second? And uh, we're, we're continuing in our series called Built to Last, and so we're going to do a little bit of a building challenge, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, so the ushers are going to be coming up and down the aisle right now. Uh, so if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you're going to want to get your hands on one, so holler at them or raise your hand. So we're going to have a bit of a building challenge between you two. So Heather, I want you to build just a solid structure, okay? You are going to be building using these blocks on this table, okay? So I'm looking for a solid structure. Let's see how you can do with that. Uh, Desmond, you are going to be building a solid structure with these playing cards, okay? And you are going to be building on this exercise ball, okay? So um, let's, if you guys could get started right there, let's, let's see how you, how you do. Let, a nice, sturdy, solid structure. Let's encourage them as they're getting going here. And uh, you can do it. You can do it. A nice, sturdy solid structure. We've been going through this series called Built to Last. And what we want to be as a church, we want to be building a church that will last here on earth for many, many years until Christ returns, but that we also want to be doing things that will last on into eternity. And so we've been looking, or we were going to begin looking today in the book of Acts and, and finding out how was that early church, which was truly built to last, how did God build the church? Now, see, what you're going to find here is that when you're building something, if you have good materials and a solid foundation, you will find success. But what you're going to find, if you don't have good materials and you don't have a strong foundation, you're not going to find success. Let's hear it for our volunteers. Thank you very much. So last week we talked about the foundation. We talked about the rock-solid reality that Peter declared as Jesus being the Christ and the Son of God. And today, knowing that we have a firm foundation to build on, what is it that God has given us to allow his church to be built? And what we're going to see in the book of Acts, right when the book of Acts starts, prayer starts. Prayer is one of our pillars here at Harvest Bible Chapel. It's one of the key aspects that we are focused on in watching God build a church that will last on earth and into eternity. A couple of things about the book of Acts before we jump in. Acts is the third largest book in the New Testament, 28 chapters, 1,003 verses, and we're going to look at a lot of them today. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the first thing you need to know about the book of Acts, is Acts is actually a sequel. It's a follow-up. It's part two. You see, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and the beginning of Luke begins. He's, He's addressing this person named Theophilus. And now, in the book of Acts, this is volume two. This is the sequel. Now he's introducing the second book. And many people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, which makes sense because they play a big role. But really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles. And it begins with the resurrected Lord Jesus spending multiple weeks with his disciples, teaching them about who he is and about what they're supposed to do. But then he tells them that the Holy Spirit is coming. Acts chapter 1 of verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, really lays out the outline or the structure for the whole book of Acts. During this series, over the course of the sermons, we are going to cover the entire book of Acts each and every week. And in order, in order to do that, we're going to have to have a sense of the structure, the flow of how the book of Acts fits together. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is actually a key for understanding the structure to the book of Acts. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the way the book of Acts is actually laid out. Take a look at this, at this chart here uh, for a second. We've, we've got the, the book of Acts. You've got it in your hand out there. Acts chapter 1 to chapter 7 is focused on Jerusalem. But then in Acts chapter 8, they, they go out beyond Jerusalem. In chapter 8 to 12, they find themselves in Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapter 13 is a turning point when we start to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And so there's kind of a geographical outline that's right there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that lays the structure for the whole book. There's also a biographical outline. There's some main characters. There's all kinds of people being used greatly by God in the book of Acts, but there's two main characters in Acts chapter 1 to 7 and 8 to 12 is the main character. He is the rock. He is the rock. He's playing a key role in, in having the church built up. But he wasn't the only one who played a key role. There was all kinds of people. And then in Acts chapter 13, that's where we see a transition from Peter being the main character in the narrative onto Paul. And so that's sort of how the book of Acts is structured. But, and and when, the, when the apostle Paul... Um, when Acts chapter 13 starts focusing on him, that's when we really see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. See, the book of Acts starts like this. They're all centered around Jerusalem. Let's take a look at the map here. You're going to see, here's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the, the, the Dead Sea. See that dot there? The, most of the ministry in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts is all centered around Jerusalem. And then they start to Judea and Samaria. Let's take a look at the next slide. So they go all the way up to this place called Antioch, and then Antioch becomes a sending church. They send Paul out on three missions trips. And so the second half of the book of Acts is here's mission trip one. Paul goes as far as called Galatia, where the book of Galatians comes from. Then he goes on a second trip, and actually he does two trips in this area. Uh, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, these are all familiar sounding cities. The book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He actually goes around this area twice. He has two mission trips. Then he returns to Jerusalem, gets arrested, and the, the second half of the book of Acts is really just three mission trips and a prisoner transfer. And what we find is Paul was being transferred because he's appealed to the emperor at Rome. And so he hits Crete. He ends up uh, going uh, to Sicily and Malta all the way up to Rome. And so that is where we're heading during the course of the book of Acts. But here's the amazing thing. Sometimes the book of Acts is talking about Peter. Sometimes the book of Acts is talking about Paul. And one part of the book of Acts is all about Jerusalem, and then it spreads to Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Listen, lots of different people, lots of different locations. The church was built the same way every time. Prayer played a key component. Doesn't matter who the characters are, doesn't matter what they are, and it's, what's true for them is true. Listen, we're all different characters. We're certainly living in a different place. But the, what was used to build the church then is to be used to build the church now, and it's prayer. And so we need to pray right now that God would speak to us with all of that in mind as we dive in uh, to God's word. And so, Heavenly Father, we 
uh, want to pray right now. We pray that you would use your word to stir something in each and every one of us, Lord. I know you're doing something in my life personally. And God, I know that you worked in the last service, God, but I pray that your spirit would move in a fresh way, that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to bring clarity and, and, and to bring a, a, a clear challenge from your word to draw closer to you in prayer as individuals and as a church. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to see today four ways that God uses prayer to build his church. Here's the first one. God uses prayer to unite his church. God uses prayer to unite his church. Take a look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. They've received this instruction that the Spirit is coming. They're supposed to wait in Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It says all of these with one accord. It doesn't mean that they were all crammed into like a Honda or something like that. Dad laughs, everyone moans. One accord means that they were on the same page. The, the, another word there in the verse is that they were all together. The prayer was what was unifying them. It's also important to notice, they knew the Spirit was coming, and yet they still prayed. You see, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But there is, there is a time in which we can take our understanding of the sovereignty of God and, and, and use that as an excuse to not pray. Oh, the Spirit's coming. We don't need to pray about it. Jesus said it's going to happen. Well, listen, the disciples still prayed. Listen, the promises of God don't make prayer pointless. They make prayer powerful because you know it's going to be answered. The sovereignty of God doesn't make prayer superfluous. It makes it supernatural because you know that you can trust that God is in control. And so, yes, we need to have a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. And we're going to see that all throughout the book of Acts. But we also need to pray earnestly that he would act in a dynamic way in our lives. And so it, it, un, it unified them. That's what's going to unify our church all together in one accord, devoting ourselves to prayer. That's to be, to be busy with prayer, to be persistent in prayer, committed to, occupied with. That's what they were focused on doing. So they didn't have time to argue with one another or nitpick with one another or compete with one another or compare themselves with one another because they were devoted to, they were focused on, occupied with prayer. It's so unifying. They were there for one purpose. They knew what they needed to do and they were engaged in it. In Acts chapter 1 verse 24, they, they, they're they find themselves needing to make a decision and they're trying to replace Judas and, and they pray that God would lead them in that. Then Acts chapter 2 comes, the Holy Spirit arrives and they're speaking in all different languages. Everyone's confused. Peter gets up and preaches. 3,000 people get saved. Now in Acts chapter 2 verses 9 to 11, it mentions 15 or 16 different geographical, ethnic, linguistic groups. 15 different Groupings of people all made up that 3,000 that got saved. Now, there'll be lots of opportunity for misunderstanding, miscommunication, judging between the groups. Yet, this early church was radically united. What was it that united them? Look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, after Peter preached, after the 3,000 were saved, in chapter 2, verse 41, verse 42 says, 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a lot in there, but prayer is in there. Prayer is what God uses to unite his church so that it is built up for his glory. We, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to that early church in Jerusalem. We've got people coming from all different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ethnicities, speak different languages. And there's a lot of opportunity for disunity simply because of the makeup of our church. And yet, if we are a church that will be committed to prayer, then we'll be a church that is committed to unity. It is prayer that God uses to unite his church. It needs to be woven into our everyday life. This Acts 2.42 here is describing what the everyday life of the church was. And it involved prayer. Take a look at Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. They had their daily prayer gathering where, where they would go to the temple to pray. We have regular seasons in our church. We have a, a monthly prayer meeting before this service starts. The elders pray in this stairway back hill. Here, the Harvest Kids workers pray in this classroom over here. The welcome ministry people pray in a stairwell back there. The worship team prays up on the platform up here. It's woven into our culture. We need more threads of prayer woven into the fabric of the life of our church. It needs to become part of our routine, part of who we are. That's how God unites our church. And as Peter and John are on their way to the temple to go pray, something incredible happens. They bump into a man who had been lame from birth. They heal him. They have an opportunity to preach to another large crowd. They get arrested. They go on trial. They receive threats. And then when we get to Acts chapter 4, In verse 23, they've been set free. Verse 23 says, When they were released, they went to their their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, because they threatened them, saying, You stop talking about Jesus or else. Then verse 24, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. More unity. Lifted their voices together. Notice the reflex of the church. As soon as they hear, oh, something bad's happening, we, we, we better pray about this. We, we just, we need to seek the Lord on this together. Notice how they didn't get out a whiteboard and say, okay, we need to change our strategy because the Sanhedrin is upset with us. No, their immediate reflex, natural reaction, because it was woven into their culture, was to pray. And here we find, for the first time in Acts chapter 4, the church is now under attack. And the church has, is vulnerable now because the Sanhedrin is now threatening them. And here's the second way God uses prayer. He uses prayer to strengthen his church. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 4 is a strengthening happening in the midst of vulnerability. In the midst of attack coming from the enemy through the Sanhedrin. God uses prayer to strengthen them. Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, they knew God was in control, not the Sanhedrin. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then you can see there he quotes Psalm 2. Notice how they pray with their Bibles open. They knew that this wasn't the first time that God's people were under attack. 
They knew that they had centuries of of examples of God's faithfulness in the scripture that they could turn to the book of Psalms and say what David went through and experiencing is similar to what we're going through and what David wrote about actually focuses on Jesus and what he went through. And we want to focus our, and and so we have such an incredible resource in God's word. This is our prayer manual. This This is our book of prayer, particularly the book of Psalms are so helpful to open them up and to read them and then to pray them out of our own situation and our own circumstance. Our, our prayers are strengthened when they're, when they're rooted in the scriptures. And that's what we see here in Acts 4. And then take a look at, look at how they pray in verse 29. Verse 29, and now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I'll tell you, if I was praying that prayer, It would have gone something like this. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and make them stop. That's what I would have prayed. But that's not how they prayed. They said, look upon their threats, but continue, help us to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The early church did not pray for soft circumstances. They prayed for strong character. And God uses prayer to strengthen the church when it is under attack. And listen, the, the enemy wants to attack us from all angles. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, they're being attacked from the outside. The Sanhedrin is threatening them. Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to see that there's an attack actually coming from the inside. Look at Acts chapter 5. Just to look at the subject heading, Ananias and Sapphira. We've got, we've got lying. We've got deception. We've got greed. God's, God's church is being attacked from the Not just from the outside, but also from the inside. Then you get to Acts chapter 6. And that great unity that we saw in Acts 2. Where all of these people from different nations were just getting along and praying. That begins to crumble and fall apart. They're attacked on the inside. Where racial and cultural tension starts to simmer and almost boil over. So that when the food is being given out, certain people are thinking that there's favoritism being given to a certain group of a certain ethnicity or a certain culture. And how is the church going to respond to these internal attacks? Well, they pray. Acts chapter 6 verse 4, when the apostles find out what's going on, they know that they've been doing a crummy job administrating all of the food distribution because they've been trying to do too many things. They've been focusing on praying and reading the word and they've also been trying to wait on tables and make sure that everyone's looked after. And so they come to this resolve in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. It says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you ever feel too distracted to pray? The, the early church felt that and they didn't even have Facebook or Netflix. Sometimes even just the, the, the activity of ministry and the pressures of trying to follow through and do what you've committed to do, it can be a distraction from the real work of building the church, which is done by prayer. And the apostles recognize that. So what do they do? They set aside a, a group of special people. And their job is to wait on tables and to make sure that there is equity and equality. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your skin color is, doesn't matter what language you speak, everyone is going to be fed. And they, they were in charge of doing that. And look at how they look at how they set them up to succeed. Look at verse six. 
These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Even the people that were giving out the food needed to be prayed for. There's no job in the kingdom of God that's too menial or too mundane that you don't need prayer. You're sitting in a chair right now that was set up last night by our incredible setup crew. I'm standing on a platform that wasn't here 24 hours ago. And we have this incredible group of men and women who faithfully come in, take this gymnasium by storm, and transform it into a worship center. And when they begin, they begin with prayer. They pray for you sitting in the chair. They pray for the people who are going to be speaking and leading. They pray that God's spirit would strengthen and help them in what they are being called to do. There's no job that's too small that falls out of the category of we need to pray for this. And so they pray for these particular disciples to be strengthened in this call. Now, one of those guys that was called upon to wait on tables, his name was, was, was Stephen. And as you follow the story at the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, Stephen gets arrested and he gets put on trial. And he has an opportunity to share his testimony. He also shares from the scripture why he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that rock-solid reality on which the church is built. And then Stephen is seized and executed. But what we see in the story of Stephen is we see the church being strengthened even, even when there's violence taking place. Satan tried to attack through the Sanhedrin. He tried to attack from the inside. And now Satan's just like, you know what, I'm just going to take somebody out. Let's see how the church likes that. Because he hates us. He hates Jesus. He wants to destroy the church. But it's prayer that strengthens the church when it's under attack. Prayer is what holds the church together when the enemy is trying to destroy it. So if you look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, it says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They threw large rocks at his skull and his his midsection to try to kill him. And and witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's going to be important. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was strengthened by prayer to the very end. And Saul is right there. And Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I don't know how many of the people that were involved in Stephen's stoning ended up getting saved, but we know that God answered that prayer because God saved Saul. And Saul did not have the sin of the execution of Stephen counted against him because Saul placed his faith on Jesus Christ who bore the penalty and the wrath of God for that sin. But Saul hadn't been saved yet. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so what we, what we see here is, is God taking the people 
of the church to the next level. He is, he is now expanding their influence. Everything was happening in Jerusalem up until this point, but there is a transition between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And God used something like persecution so that the word would spread further. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And, and what we're going to see now is that God is taking the church to a new level. He is pushing through a new boundary. And God uses prayer to expand his church. When God is going to take his church to a new place, when they are going to reach a new level, when they are going to break through a new boundary, God uses prayer in order to do that. He used Stephen's prayer. It was answered through Saul, and there was no one like Saul, whose name changed to Paul, that was used to greater expand the church. And as you continue through the story, you have chapter 8, Philip sharing with the Ethiopian eunuch, and so the influence of the gospel is now spreading down into Africa. God is expanding his church. And then in Acts chapter 9, when God gets a hold of Saul, and he he meets Saul on the road to Damascus and then he calls Ananias to go and to pray for Saul and to get him started on his lifelong mission of sharing the gospel. Look at what God said to Ananias. Chapter 9, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he is praying. He is praying. Before Saul Saul started proclaiming, he started praying. And before God took him around the world and, and, and had his feet step on all of these new cities and proclaim the gospel there, he had Paul on his knees praying. When God is going to expand his church, he does it by calling his people to pray. If you go to Acts chapter 10, We're introduced to a character named Cornelius. Cornelius represents an important turning point in the book of Acts. The story of Cornelius is told and retold a number of times in the book of Acts because it's so crucial. And here's why. Cornelius was the first true non-Jewish person to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They had had started in, in Jerusalem. And then they, then they, it spread to Judea and Samaria, but even Samaritans were kind of half Jewish. Cornelius was just straight up Gentile, straight up not Jewish. And so this is a turning point for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth now. And so God is going to use Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius. Again, Peter played a played a key role. He was like a rock. He was, he was there when the gospel was spread first initially, when the Samaritans first received the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to be used here in Cornelius' life. Look how God uses prayer. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He went up there to pray. And God meets him while he's praying, and he tells him about uh, Cornelius. And this is what, and when he and Cornelius eventually meet, and God's orchestrating all of this through prayer, if you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 31, God is expanding his church. It says, talking about this, this angel that appeared to Cornelius, it says that this angel came and said, verse 31, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. 
Prayer is all over the expanding of the church. Paul was praying before he was sent on his mission. Peter was praying before he went to Cornelius. Cornelius had, had prayed before Peter even came uh, to see him. When God wants to expand his church, he calls his people to pray. And I don't know about you, but if, if you're picking up on things, that God is calling our church to a season of expansion. We don't know what that looks like, but we believe, if you just look around here, there's not a whole lot of room in this gym. And we want to make sure that as many people in this great city and this nation and around the world have the privilege of hearing the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what we're committed to. That's our mission statement of making disciples. And we want to do it by loving God and loving others. And I believe that these are crucial times for us because God is building his church. And if we are going to have wisdom and direction from God in building his church, God is going to have to stir something in each and every one of us to pray and to lean on him. Because when God is going to push through a boundary, when God is going to expand the ministry or the influence or the impact of a church, he does it by calling his people to pray. These are such important times for us to be praying as a church. God uses prayer to expand his church. So Cornelius gets saved. A whole bunch of other people that were there give their lives to Jesus Christ as well. Now we start to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 11, Peter reports back to the church. Peter was not the rock or the only rock he had to give he was accountable to the other apostles he gave a report uh, to them but then acts chapter 12 something very significant happens and it's described so quickly we almost lose the force of it acts 12 says about that time at the time where the church is expanding at the time when it seems like there's no limit to what god can do at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It, 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 it's just described so quickly. You know, when Stephen gets executed, there's sort of this build-up. Even though we didn't know Stephen before, he was just sort of this new character who arrived in Acts 6, but then there's this, there's this tension rising in Acts chapter 7, and we get to know Stephen, we get to know his heart, and then his execution is described in such great detail. But when James dies, this is James, the brother of John. This is one of the sons of Zebedee. This is one of the first four disciples that was ever called. This is one of the inner three of the disciples that only three people saw the transfiguration and James was one of them. Only three of them saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead and James was one of them. James played such a monumental role as a disciple and as an apostle in the early church. And his execution is given one verse. Just think of how that would have impacted what was happening in the church. You know, it's interesting. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were the ones who kind of sent their mom ahead of them to talk to Jesus about like reserving a seat at the head table. And then Jesus' question to them was, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Talking about his sacrifice. James and John didn't even, know, didn't even realize what they were saying. They said, yes, we are. And in some ways, they did. It's interesting. James was the first apostle to be executed and John was the last. I'm not sure which one was harder. 
but both paid that ultimate price. And you think about how much this would have rocked that church community. James is dead. And Peter is in prison. Take a look at at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, killing James pleased uh, the Jews. That's not every Jewish person, but the Jewish leaders in the city of Jerusalem. When it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Why do you think he brought him out to the people? Because killing James made him so popular. He thought, well, I'm going I'm I'm to milk this for all it's worth. He's going to kill Peter too, but he's going to publicly bring him forward and make this great big scene and then kill Peter as well. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest, I love this, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod seems like he's so in control. Peter's surrounded by soldiers. He's all chained up, but earnest prayer was being made. This marriage was on the rocks. It was about to fall apart. They can barely look at each other, but earnest prayer prayer was made. This teenager was so wayward and so rebelling against, against their parents, but earnest prayer was, was being made by the church. God was going to strengthen his church. Then an angel shows up, wakes Peter up in the middle of the night. His chains fall off. All the guards are still sleeping. He just, the, the gate just opens up in front of him. He ends up getting free. He thinks the whole thing is like a dream or a vision. And then all of a sudden he comes to himself and he realizes, well, that wasn't a dream. I'm actually free. And so he goes in verse 12. It says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. So the people are praying for Peter to be set free. And here comes Peter, verse 13. And when he knocked at the door... Of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Peter's like, he sees Rhoda there through the window. Hey, she turns around and runs back. Peter's like, you could have let me in. And then I love this. She says, Peter's standing at the gate, verse 15. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Just picture this in the prayer meeting. This This is how I sort of picture it going. Oh, sovereign Lord, you can do all things. Set Peter free, we pray, God. Set him free. Break him out of jail, we pray. What's that, Rhoda? Why are you interrupting? Peter's at the gate. You're out of your mind. What are you talking about? God, set him free. Would you do it, Lord? And then then it says, but she kept insisting in verse 15 that it was so and they kept saying, it is his angel. So there was some, you know, super charismatic person there as well. Yes, Rhoda, yes. Yes, it's his angel. Yes, it's his and, and, and meanwhile, flesh and blood, Peter is standing outside the gate. Now listen, think about all the miracles and everything that the early church experienced. If they could fall into the trap of praying earnestly, but not expectantly, how easy it is for us. How easy it, how easy it is for us to just kind of go through the motions. Oh Lord, do this. Oh Lord, bless him. Oh Lord, help her. But not truly expect that God is going to work. That's how we need to pray. 
Peter gets set free, and then a miraculous turn of events. At the end of chapter 12, Herod, who was going to kill Peter, Herod ends up dying. And then we come to Acts chapter 13. And here's how we see that God uses prayer to direct his church. God uses prayer to unite his church, strengthen his church, expand his church, and direct his church. This is that transition point from Peter to Paul. This is that transition point from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's going to come through direction. And it's going to come through direction that, that, that was given by prayer. Acts chapter 13 describes how this church at Antioch just had such an abundance of gifted leaders and teachers. And that's how I feel at Harvest Brampton. Is there's, there's so many people teaching God's word right now in different classrooms to children or to adults in Harvest Essentials or Christianity Explored or our small group leaders. There's so many different people who are gifted in teaching God's word. And Antioch really became a sending base as I pray that this church would be used greatly to send people out. And so... You get a bit of a list there in chapter 13, verse 1 of the different teachers. And then in verse 2 it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So the Spirit leads them as they're praying. But look at verse 3. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and were sent off. You can't be any more sure than if the Holy Spirit actually named names and said, I'm not sure what this looked like, but it said, okay, Saul and Barnabas, they are the ones who are going to go and be sent off. And yet, even though they they were so sure that this is what they were supposed to do, they still fasted and prayed. Isn't that incredible? They still fasted and prayed. They still sought the Lord, even though it seemed completely for sure on lock this is going to happen. They, they didn't trust their own judgment. They completely leaned on the Lord and prayed for them before they were sent out. And God directed them. And here's how we see uh, Paul and Barnabas initially, initially get sent out. They go on their first missions trip. They visit uh, Cyprus and then they end up in the region of uh, Galatia. So there's Antioch there and then their first trip They get as far as the region of uh, Galatia. Then they go on their second and third trip, which which takes them to uh, Philippi and Corinth and uh, Ephesus. And they visit those churches kind of twice and cycle around. While they're on that second, uh, second trip, if you look with me at chapter 16 and verse 25, they had led uh, a woman, a, a local businesswoman named Lydia to the Lord, and then this demon-possessed slave girl to the Lord in Philippi. Great way to build a church. And, and then they get arrested. And we've already seen one jailbreak. Uh, Peter got set free. Now it's turn, time for Paul's jailbreak. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And then God does an earthquake, and they get set free, and even the jailer ends up, he's, he's suicidal, but Paul actually leads him to the Lord. God continues to build his church, and then that becomes the church at, at Philippi, that the letter of Philippians was 
was written to. God continued to uh, direct his church. Then on the on the on this same uh, the, the the second version of this trip, the third missions trip, he's visiting around and he connects with the elders from Ephesus. And look with me at Acts chapter uh, twenty, Acts twenty verse thirty six, and he's about to say goodbye to them. In Acts twenty thirty six, it says, "When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed." With them all. Then he's involved. He goes home uh, to Jerusalem. If you look at Acts chapter 21 and verse 5. While they're in transit it says. When our days were ended. We departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us. Until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach we prayed. And Paul was going home to Jerusalem. And prophecy was made. Uh, that he was going to be arrested. And that's exactly what happened. He went home to Jerusalem. And then he, in chapter 22 and 23 and 24, he's on trial. And then chapter 25 and 26, more trials from prison to prison, place to place. And the book of Acts ends not with a missions trip, but with a prison transfer. A, a, a prisoner transfer where Paul is being taken from one prison to another. He ends up going all the way to Rome. And we see the gospel starting to touch all the nations of the earth. And the book of Acts ends the same way it begins. If you look at Acts chapter 28, verse 8, while he's on his way there, Acts 28, verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, one more thing. While he's on his way there, he gets shipwrecked. Chapter 27 uh, and verse 9, while they're being um, a shipwrecked, maybe it's 27, verse 19. There's a verse in chapter 27 about being shipwrecked. I wrote the wrong verse in my notes, so you can look it up on your own time. But Paul, prayer is part of who he is and what he does. Chapter 28 and verse 8 now, where he's safely on land, it says that happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. Acts chapter 28 has prayer. Acts chapter 1 has prayer. Just about every chapter in between has prayer. Prayer is what God used to build his church. But I want to say this in conclusion, that we need to remember the rock. We need to remember the rock, that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Prayer is pointless unless we remember the rock. Remember what these words mean. Jesus is the Christ. That means that he's the king. So when we pray, we are praying to the one who is in charge of the universe. That he is the prophet who told us how to pray. He told us parables to motivate us to pray. He taught us about who his father is. And then he is the priest. He is the priest who made the sacrifice so that we could enter into God's presence boldly. He is the priest who, while we are interceding, he's interceding for us. And that he is the Christ and the son of the living God. And because he called God Father, we can call God Father. Because he is the son of God, he, through his death, burial, and resurrection, on our behalf, we can call God our Father as sons and daughters of God. We need to remember the rock. And when we remember the rock, we will be motivated to pray. Now normally when we conclude a sermon here at Harvest, the person speaking is the one who does the praying. But I think it would be fitting if we all did the praying right now. And I'm going to ask that you would just huddle up. Maybe there's two or three people that you came with. Maybe you could turn around with some people who are behind you. And you can start to do that now. We're going to huddle up. We're going to actually pray. 
And I would ask that you would pray for prayer. That God would do a work in us as a church. Would you pray that this place would be a house of prayer? Would you pray for our small groups and our other ministries? That it would be grounded and rooted in the rock. And that that would be expressed in a devotion to prayer? Would you pray for me that I would be a greater man of prayer as a, as a follower of Christ and a husband and a father and as a pastor? Would you pray for our elders and their families and the leaders and the staff in our church that we would be more committed to prayer? And so you can start to huddle up now. We're going to pray together. Maybe you're not comfortable praying out loud. That's fine. You can just pray quietly to yourself. But let's earnestly seek the Lord together. Let's be of one accord. Let's lift our voices together. Let's have a holy roar of voices crying out to God in small little groups, praying that God would make us a people of prayer. And so let's pray that, let's pray for that right now. Let's do that. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.